Shalom, and welcome to A Voice Calling in the Wilderness, a trumpet call, a voice crying out loud for God to those that would hear, so that they would run to Him, that they might be warned. We are here sounding the alarm, that our time here on earth is short, and that we have no time to waste. Here we will expose the truth, teach the word, discuss the dangers, lies, and enemies we are surrounded by, and how to engage in the war that we are standing in the middle of. Today we are talking with our friend Pastor Gary Durham in a continued discussion on sin and salvation. Welcome to the show, Pastor Durham. Uh, it's good to be back again, J.D. So last time we began discussing salvation, and I know we got a long ways down the road, but I'd really like to spend some more time on this topic and try to give closure to those that have been asking some questions. So my first poor call today is going to be, does man have any part in the plan for salvation? Do we play any part in in our salvation? Yeah, I guess uh, and uh, that, that's a very important question because on that question has been the great divide of theological history on soteriology, on salvation. Uh, and uh, I think we might start by quoting a verse of Scripture and then talk a little bit about the history of how things have happened. Paul, uh, there, we could go to many places, but Philippians 2, 12 and 13, where Paul ta- is talking to the Philippians, he says, as you've always obeyed, not only my presence, but now much more in my absence. Then he says this, continue to work out your salvation with fear and trembling. Now, the word fear there doesn't mean terror. It means with great reverence. And trembling is really an interesting word. It's a very pictorial word in the Greek, and it means to actually see this as something very serious uh, so that although you know you shouldn't tremble because you got to do something very exact, yet you tremble because you understand how serious it is. Mm. So that's kind of the word picture. So he says, with great reverence and great sense of seriousness, work out your salvation. So obviously there's a work here. But then he, without even breaking the sentence, says, for it is God who works in you. So in other words, Paul quickly makes it clear where the power is coming from and that God is working in us. And then he makes some, says something so profound, for it is God who works in you both to will and to act according to his good purpose. Now, that's a very important theological point because there are certain forms of theology about salvation, soteriology, that say that God bypasses the human will. Paul here says, no, you need to put your will to work, but you need to understand it's not coming from you. You don't have the power yourself. It's God in you, and he is working through your will. It is for it's God who works in you to help you do what? First, to will, to make a decision, and then second, to follow through with action so that you actually validate the decision you made. So we can start there and say, well, the Bible, and we could go to various places to confirm this, but the Bible is clearly saying that we have something that we need to do, but we need to realize that it's enabled by God and by the Holy Spirit. Therefore, salvation will not be to our our glory, and it will not be due to our ability, but it will be because the Holy Spirit enabled us. And that's, that's where I'll kind of start there. Yeah, we've heard it many times that we ask for our will to be transformed through this process. Mm-hmm. So our desires, our our will starts to act more like what God's is. Yeah. And, and I think it's important to understand that uh, we have to talk about the human will as having a part to play, even though we can't save ourselves. In other words, we're not capable of making the choice to save ourselves. But it's also important for us not to be automatons, aren't we? Yeah, Right. And, but the other thing is that the Bible continually, all through the Old Testament and the New, uh, appeals to people to make certain decisions and moral decisions and decisions that will move them toward God. And it wouldn't do that if we could absolutely do nothing whatsoever to move us in the right direction. But it does make it clear that we cannot save ourselves and that human willpower is not enough. Mm-hmm. Um, now, that brings us you know, really to some history, I think. And if uh, you want to kind of go that direction, I think it would yeah, be important to help understand Yeah, I think we should because this. there are, well, I think there's two really main camps, I guess, if you will, in the Americas for sure. And you're either on the side and leaning towards Calvinism or you're looking more towards Wesleyanism. Yeah, that might be labels that would be kind of representative of that. Uh, I prefer to say that the, the biblical position is kind of a 
what some call a classical apostolic orthodoxy. Uh, that might confuse some people because you don't hear that much. Mm-hmm. Uh, but uh, And yes, there are some forms of Wesleyanism that fall within classical apostolic orthodoxy. There are some forms of... Uh, there are some forms of Calvinism that fall very much within that, uh, which we would call moderate Calvinism falls very much within that to a large degree. Uh, but there are in, there are forms of what we might call Wesleyanism or Arminianism that fall way outside the boundaries of what we would call classical apostolic orthodoxy. And there, there are certainly forms of Calvinism like hyper-Calvinism and so on that fall way outside that. And and maybe I should explain what we mean by classical apostolic orthodoxy. You know, people are always saying, well, I, I don't believe in tradition or anything like this. I just believe in the Bible. Well, <laughs> of course we do. Yeah. You, you wanted to say something? No, no, no. I, I hear that all the time. And yeah. when you break it down and start to talk to them, it's not necessarily what the Bible's telling them that they're believing in. It's what they've been taught. Yeah. Yeah. And, and and that's interesting because people will say, well, I don't I don't believe in doctrine. I just believe in the Bible. Well, the Bible is doctrine. <laughs> Paul said, hold fast the doctrine, mm-hmm. the teachings, because by, you know, you told Timothy that. And he said, because if you do, you'll save both yourself and those who hear you. So the Bible is constantly talking about holding fast the doctrine. The Didache uh, was uh, one of the earliest Christian writings, right? Uh, you know, probably either produced at the end of John's life or just after his death sometime right in that era. And it was used to teach young believers and get them ready for baptism. But the Didache literally means the teaching, the doctrine. It was the things that they were supposed to know and uh, the things that were important. So doctrine has always been important. That's why Paul said to Timothy, hold fast to the doctrine. You know, watch your life and doctrine closely, he tells him. Uh, So, but the important thing to understand here is that over this issue of the will, uh, the church has fought a lot of battles. For example, one of the first heretics in the church was a person by the name of Pelagius. Now, Pelagius became probably more famous because there was a huge debate in the 5th century, in the 400s, uh, between him and Augustine, who, of course, is one of the fathers that many people look up to, and rightly so, for many good reasons. Augustine was brilliant. And, uh, and he and Augustine had a long debate where Augustine was debating against his system of theology. Now, Pelagius' system of theology was quite complex, and he gets a bad rap in a lot of ways, but here's the point. He was very wrong on certain things. He did not believe that man had a corrupt nature, when you really boil it down, that basically our problem was we all got a bad example, and we all follow bad examples, and that Jesus came to set us the perfect example. And so when we put our eyes on Jesus in faith, then we start conforming to his example and that we can save ourselves by our own power and will by choosing to do good and emulate Jesus. Now, the early church said, no, that's not the gospel. And Augustine argued against him, uh, you know, vehemently. And unfortunately, it also changed Augustine, because whenever you get so focused on an error, you tend to react to that error, and it will put you in an opposite error. I always tell my theology students, never, never, never form your theology by reacting to an error. You just end up in an opposite area. You'll go from one ditch to the other ditch. You won't stay on the road of truth. Mm-hmm. Uh, the key is always to conform to the scriptures, to conform. Now, when we talk about classical apostolic uh, orthodoxy, we're talking about the fact that there is tradition in the church. Now, uh, everybody has tradition, and what we mean by that, tradition is just simply systems that have either been approved or not approved, and we know that tradition can go bad. Jesus condemned the Pharisees for having traditions that went against the truth. But uh, but uh, it is important to understand that the, that the apostles, in fact, many Greek words are hold to the tradition I gave you, hold, and we sometimes 
translate that teaching, but really the word is tradition. Paul will say to the believers, hold to the traditions you saw in me. Do the things you saw me do, because that's the traditions I want you to follow. I was just saying there's a lot of them that we still are easy to identify for people today, and one of them being the Lord's Supper. Yes. And and this is what we would call a sacrament introduced by the Lord. Most Protestants only recognize the sacraments that were actually introduced by the Lord. Not all do. Uh, some, you know, the, the Roman Catholics recognize seven sacraments, and uh, but there are uh, most Protestant or Protestant evangelicals recognize two because they, they believe that baptism was ordained by the Lord and that the Lord's Supper, the, the Eucharist, was ordained by the Lord. Uh, and so we consider those sacraments because they were personally uh, inaugurated by him or mm-hmm. personally endorsed by him. However, when we look back at Pelagius, this debate, uh, Augustine had been involved with the many uh, defenses of the faith, and he had for a long time— uh, resisted and written against uh, the Manichaeans, as I told you, I think, in one of the last broadcasts, mm-hmm. which were, ag- you know, were basically uh, Gnostic uh, determinist who had tried to drag that into the church and, and create determinism. And the early, all the early church fathers wrote against them. And even John, you can see that John is fighting them in his, uh, the way he structures his, go- his gospel, because he writes that, that's the last thing he wrote, and also in his late letters, his first and second, and mostly his first letter. Uh, he is, he's fighting the, all these ideas that come from these Manichaeans. And Augustine was right on track with the early church fathers fighting against that. When he got to reacting to Pelagius, uh, he went back and decided that for a rhetorical and debate tactic, he would go back to a kind of determinism. And he tried to baptize Manichaean ideas and bring them into the church. And that's the ones I mentioned that John Calvin became so enamored with. And and I'll tell you in a moment why he became enamored with them. He had good reason. But the point is, is that Augustine does this almost U-turn back toward his Manichaean root, because he'd been a Manichaean before he was saved. And uh, he drags into Christianity what for, you know, 400 years would have been considered completely unthinkable. Uh, And he drags it in in his later years because he starts reacting to Pelagius. And again, reaction to error puts you in the opposite error. And so we see this down through history because what happens is that the church eventually uh, excommunicates Pelagius because he is a heretic. He's teaching mm-hmm. false doctrine. He's destroying the gospel. Uh, Augustine's debate with him had no little bit to do with that, you know. <laughs> but the uh, the point is, is that Calvin comes along centuries later, and he, of course, reads Augustine, as so many do, because he had brilliant writings, and he was a very prolific writer, uh, tons of writings. But those late, later writings where he's arguing with Pelagius and he turns toward this determinism just captivated John Calvin. Now, there's a reason why. Uh, during When you get to the time of John Calvin in the 1500s, the Roman church, as we call it today, that was really only, you know, before the Reformation, you know, before Luther, which had just come a little before Calvin, there'd only been the church, mm-hmm. you know, except for the Greek Orthodox split off. But uh, but the point is, is that the Roman church had become very, very corrupt through political power and so on. Many of the popes, uh, I mean, there's good reason to believe that they weren't even converted individuals. They were just politicians with a lot of power, and they used the church for power. And because many of the early church people believed an eschatology that said that it was kind of what we call all millennialism, and that is, is that the church is going to ultimately conquer the world and, and, and make it Christian, and then after they have for a thousand years created this paradise on earth, Jesus will come back and compliment the church and reward them for having done a good job. And so when Roman Catholicism began, you know, under Constantine in the 300s, began to be tied to political power, and then the church became extremely powerful. In fact, it began to control many of the various empires, 
and at times almost controlled the whole of Western culture and and uh, was called Christendom mm-hmm. because it became kind of like a kingdom. And uh, the result of that was that it became so corrupt politically that uh, it, it really began to be theologically and biblically just ignorant. In fact, it was interesting that in the 1300s, 1400s, 1500s, there were actually some uh, what we would call like polls taken. I mean, people went around, I mean, some theologians who were more serious went around and asked all the priests, okay, can you tell me where the Ten Commandments are found in the Bible? Most of them couldn't. Uh, Can you quote any of them? Mm, A couple of them, you know. Uh, Do you know where the Sermon on the Mount is found? No, they didn't have a clue. Uh, the priests were totally ignorant of the Bible because it, it wasn't something you read. It was only in Latin. The priest could read Latin. They had to. The people were not allowed to read the Bible. They were not taught Latin because by this time they had decided that God wanted, ever since the primary language kept going dead, that the Bible was written in first the Koine Greek and then Jerome translated it into the Latin the vulgar Latin, you know, it means the and uh, it literally means the common Latin. The Vulgate means vulgar Latin. It just means the common Latin, mm-hmm. and uh, and the, and that became the universal language. And then that becomes a dead language. And so by that time, the priesthood and the Roman Catholic Church said, "Well, God must want this in this language that the people can't understand, and therefore He only wants us to interpret it." Well, the problem was the people became completely biblically ignorant. And uh, and there was a lot of persecution when people like, uh, you know, Wycliffe and others started trying to translate it into the language of the people. In fact, you know, as you know, they were burned at the stake mm-hmm. and everything else. And, and there were Bible burnings by the Roman church because they were in the wrong language. So they were considered bad, mm-hmm. you know. And uh, so it's, it's hard to believe a church is actually burning Bibles, you know, but that's what they were doing. And uh, but the result of all this is that that Calvin is, is seeing that the Roman Catholic Church has become in its practices very Pelagian. In other words, it's all a work salvation, and, you know, it's the indulgences that Luther reacted against. It's all this stuff that is all about, you know, you can do it, and, you know, you need to do penance, and you need to do meritorious works, and you— and you can store up meritorious works, and and you know, and if you become a saint and have a surplus of meritorious works, other people can get that if they're willing to pay money and and so on to the church. The church can credit, you know, uh, merit to them from a saint, and 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 there's nothing in the Bible about any of this, you know. But they had developed this whole system that was very, very based on human willpower and ability and human works. And Calvin, of course, saw that this has to go. This is not the gospel. It is not what Jesus taught. It's not what the Bible speaks about. But instead of going to the scriptures and really just kind of following Luther to a large degree, and Luther kind of went a little bit that direction because he did react to the Roman Catholic Church too. But the point is, is that Calvin really goes in the opposite direction because he wants a theology that is foolproof against any form of human will causing salvation, any works at all being involved. So he decides he's going to create a theology that will be human works proof. In other words, man will have absolutely nothing he can do about his salvation. And that put him in, in that by reacting that way, he tended to go into another ditch. And that ditch was he went to the place of basically... Manichaean determinism. He fell in love with Augustine's Manichaean writings uh, that tried to baptize Manichaeism and determinism and basically said, man has no free will. God determines every word that comes out of his mouth and so on and so forth. And so, uh, you know, and yet Calvin struggled all of his life because that tended to make God the only sinner in the universe. And he kept trying to keep away from that conclusion with uh, what I call his mystery bridges. Every time it would get him in trouble, he'd say, well, we know that somehow this is to God's glory, and that's really not where we're at, and so on and so forth. And I see that a lot of this confusion is still lingering today, especially within questions that I see people asking about, you know, is God forcing salvation on us? Is God forcing these gifts on us? And, mm-hmm. and I think it goes back to those roots that everything is through God and we have no control. Well, and, and the key 
the key uh, principle, the key uh, thing in Calvinism, especially hyper-Calvinism, but in, in Calvin's writing himself, Calvin was not what we call hyper-Calvin. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Hyper-Calvin is Calvin on steroids, okay? <laughs> it's, it's taking what Calvin wrote and following it to its logical conclusions, because Calvin's system is a philosophical theology, not a biblical theology. He based it all on logic. And uh, so, and we'll see that in a moment. It was Beasy and some who followed him that took it to its logical conclusion, which Calvin was not willing to do because he knew those conclusions weren't biblical. So he refused to do that, even though he knew logically that's where it led. And that's why he was always concerned. He, he was very upset with his system down toward the end of his life because he said, I can't make it turn out like I want to. I have to have all these mystery bridges to keep getting it back where it belongs. But uh, Calvin followed Augustine. And as a result of that, he ends up creating a foolproof theology. Now, Calvin was a great man, and he was a godly man, and he was a brilliant man. He was a brilliant theologian, and we, have, we owe him a lot. So I'm not trying to pound on Calvin here. You need to understand that. Mm-hmm. But at the same time, he did get some things terribly wrong, and it left the door open to a lot of really bad theology that followed him. And some of it is in his own institutes. When you read his institutes, you see he's saying things like we mentioned before, that God determined that man should fall, but man fell, you know, but man is guilty for his own fault. In other words, I'm just paraphrasing him. But which is, you know, you're basically talking nonsense. That, that's impossible. You've got a contradiction going on there. So what Calvin did is he produced a system that kept all human works out of it. And what you had to have, and this is what's central to Calvinism, is that God saves by divine decrees. We're not saved by faith. Faith comes later. We're saved by a divine decree. God determines who gets saved and who doesn't. Now, the problem is there's no place in the Bible that says we're saved by divine decree. It says we're saved by faith in Jesus Christ. Over and over and over and over it says that. Uh, but it does talk about God's decrees, but they're never about that he decrees people's salvation in the sense that so often you hear people interpret verses of Scripture to mean that. But that's the central tenet of so much of Calvinism, and it was Calvin's way of saying, I'm going to make this system of theology that's foolproof against Roman Pelagianism, and we're going to get rid of Pelagianism once and for all. And it did. You can't have any Pelagianism in Calvinism. And so it was very effective. The problem is, is it created many of its own problems. And that's what we need to talk about next. Yeah. And I think there's some great comparisons between that and what later many of the Western churches follow, and that is the Wesleyan model. Mm-hmm. And I think that that kind of helped bridge the gap between God's true determinism of everything and then man having free will. Wesley, though, Wesley, a lot of people say, well, Wesley was a great man, and he was, uh, but he was not really a theologian. Now, Wesley was highly trained, brilliant. He, he was, they called him the man of one book. And the reason they called him the man of one book is that he, he constantly read his Bible as he was on horseback going from town to town, and he read it in the, in the original languages. He was extremely educated, and he was just saturated in the scriptures. And Wesley, if you read his writings, though he never wrote a systematic theology like Calvin did by writing his Institutes and so on, uh, Wesley's writings are very profoundly theological, and uh, he clearly was a theologian. And and a very, but he was very concerned about practical theology, enabling people to actually live it out in life. And uh, he was great friends with Wycliffe. Uh, he and Wycliffe were great, not Wycliffe, but uh, George Whitfield. And he and George Whitfield were great friends, although George Whitfield was more of a Calvinist and Wesley was not so Calvinistic. In fact, he only said, I'm just a hair width away from Calvinism, but he, he never, he said, there's certain things I just can't swallow because they're not biblical, he didn't think. And he and Wycliffe differed on that, but they loved each other dearly and respected each other dearly. And they were both great men. Wycliffe, however, and I keep saying Wycliffe, I'm, I'm talking about George Whitfield. Mm. The truth is, is that Whitfield would say later that Wesley made some of the right decision because of the way he structured the, his theology and the way he helped people with it, with his 
small groups and his, you know, his discipleship and everything, his work lasted where Whitfield was kind of a, a revival splash that eventually just died away, although he was an incredible, incredible preacher of the word. Um, so what what really happens here is that, uh, yeah, you, you get some correction through Wesley, uh, but uh, we need to look at what it was that ultimately has produced uh, where a lot of our questions come from. You know, uh, you know, does God predetermine and force himself on people uh, mm-hmm. and so on? And so to do that, we need to really look at Calvinism because th- there are good forms of Calvinism. Moderate Calvinism is very close to Wesleyanism, in fact, and they agree on almost everything that is uh, what I would say central. In fact, I would point to like... Uh, uh, Norman Geisler as uh, the, the probably the the most profound moderate Calvinist theologian, and and he he pretty much ends up right where some what I would call more orthodox Wesleyan teaching ends up, and and uh, but they get there differently. Uh, he does it from a Calvinistic perspective, and 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 uh, and the Wesleyans do it a little differently. And I I often say that in some cases. Uh, Norman goes around the world to get next door, but he gets there, <laughs> and he's brilliant, brilliant theologian. I'm, I'm, I have great respect for him. Of course, he he died uh, a little over a year ago, and we lost him, and that was a great loss. I hate I hated to see that, but um, but nonetheless, uh, what we what we have to look at is how Calvinism became the structured system it is based on the writings of Calvin. And then those who followed him, like Beezy and others, and the big uh, debate between the Calvinist Arminius, who was the leading Dutch Reform Calvinist theologian in the universities, the Dutch Reform University, who was never defeated in debate, who was trying to correct hyper-Calvinism back to a more biblical perspective. And it's interesting that Arminius's name is like a dirty word among uh, hyper-Calvinist in particular, and he's actually a Calvinist. Uh, they don't know, many of them don't know that because all they've ever heard is that, you know, uh, Arminianism is this terrible thing. It's, you know, it's it's uh, it's uh, heretical and blah, blah, blah. The truth is, is Arminius was very much a Calvinist and no Calvinist who ever debated him could win a debate against him because he was so biblical and so brilliant. But he was trying to correct it away from this determinism and uh, the Beezy group was very strong and had pushed Calvinism all the way to this determinism. And they developed, ultimately out of that group came what was called the tulip theory. Now, you've heard of the tulip theory, I'm sure, J.D. Yeah, and I wanted to make a real comment here. I hear a lot of people ask a question about, and I think this may help with some of the Calvinistic idea too. In the Bible, it says that Jesus died to pay for all our sins, everyone's mm-hmm. sins. Well, isn't that forcing the salvation on us? Because they stop there and they don't go to the next step where it is you have to accept this. Yeah. Well, we don't believe in universalism because that would mean that, you know, Jesus and his salvation, you know, he did save the whole world potentially. We have to add the word potentially. Uh, but he did does not force it on anyone. He does not coerce. And, and that's where we go back to if we, in our very first session. We started with the fall of man, mm-hmm. and we talked about, you know, the, the Trinity before that and how the relationship of love and how for us to be love capable, we have to have moral freedom and moral responsibility, or we're not even love capable. Therefore, we couldn't bear the image of God at all. And so to bear the image of God, we have to have moral freedom. And so God made us love capable. He took a risk, not for himself, but for us, uh, because he wanted a world of meaning where something actually of real purpose and significance could happen and that we could actually love him because that has to be chosen freely. Uh, All that being understood, when we go back to that, we realize that God doesn't coerce. And so that kind of universalism would be unacceptable. On the other hand, we need to understand that uh, there's a kind of coercion involved in this idea that God only, you know, wanted to save a certain number of people and that the atonement is limited to that and does not apply to others. And that's what's often called the salvation of the elect. Mm-hmm. And we'll 
maybe talk about that in a moment when we talk about TULIP. But we need to talk about TULIP so then we can then talk about why or why not we would say that, uh, you know, can people, you know, lose their salvation or not and right. so on. Because those are things that uh, we need to discuss in what I would call an apostolic uh, orthodox view. And that apostolic tradition, which we kind of got away from explaining, is that we all interpret the Bible through the lens of some tradition. Mm-hmm. Uh, we have what is called tradition one, which is apostolic uh, tradition. We interpret it the way the apostles interpreted it. We interpret it the way the students of the apostles in the first centuries and second centuries and third centuries said that's what the apostles meant by what they wrote because that's what they told us, right. you know, because they, they knew the apostles or knew someone who was trained by an apostle. Uh, and that's called a, a tradition one. Tradition two comes along later, and tradition two basically says, well, uh, the Word of God is not the supreme authority, but the church and the Word of God are pretty much equal. And then tradition two morphed into, well, the church is actually over the Word of God, and the church determines what the Word of God actually means. And the, the Roman Catholic Church had not moved to tradition two in the time of Luther, but Luther pushed him to it because he was standing on tradition one. You remember at the Diet of Worms where he said, you know, I, you know, I'm standing on the Word of God and here I stand, I can do no other. And he was basically saying the Word of God supports everything I'm saying and I will, and the Word of God is the authority, not the church. And that pushed the church uh, to basically say, no, 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 no. The church is the authority, and we determine what the Word of God says, so you're wrong. And and ultimately, it would take a, a number of years, but the church literally officially, and one of their councils, changed it from tradition one to tradition two. They'd been leaning that way a long way, and they'd actually been practicing it that way for a long time. But Luther, literally, his Reformation ultimately pushed them across the border, and they actually made it a, their official, you know, so now the Roman Catholic Church says, we are the standard of truth. We tell you what the Bible means, and you're not allowed to interpret it for yourself. And then there's, there's a third one called Tradition Zero. And Tradition Zero is what was adopted by many of the Antibaptist source groups that came out of Europe and uh, you know, the, the, the Plymouth Brethren and some of those. Uh, that basically said there is no tradition, so every person is free to interpret it according to their own perception. And, of course, that's what created so much chaos in evangelicalism and Protestantism, because when you have no apostolic guide as to why and how to interpret what the apostles said, and everybody's free to come up with their own system of interpretation, you get some wild systems of interpretation, (laughs) and it's produced thousands and thousands and thousands of denominations and little spinoffs and cults and all kinds of things because we don't have an apostolic tradition guiding that interpretation. So that's kind of a go back to that. And then mm-hmm. then we come back to Calvinism and see that, uh, yeah, there's some real issues here with determinism. So your tulip theory is the total depravity of man, unconditional election, limited atonement, irresistible grace, and the preservation of the saint. Yeah, let's talk through, through those for a moment. Sure. Now, this is not something that Calvin produced. This was something out of what he had written that later uh, adherers of Calvinism said, well, here's a good way to kind of systematize it. What you must understand at the foundation of Calvinism is you're saved by divine decree. Secondly, the other presupposition, that which is presupposed, is that God's sovereignty is his number one attribute. Now, we talked about last time and a couple of times that love is God's number one attribute because it's eternal and he's always been a God of love, but he was not a sovereign God till he created something other than himself because therefore sovereignty and most theologians say it's not an attribute of God. It's not even listed by many Calvinist theologians as an attribute of God. Uh, rather, it is an attribution of God. And certainly we know because of who he is, he's the creator and he has all power. He is, once he creates anything other than himself, he's going to be the one who is sovereign. He's in charge. He's the ruler. And uh, he supports the whole creation by his own divine power and word. But what we have to understand is that uh, this uh, tulip theory came along 
as a way of trying to build on this idea of sovereignty. The problem with Calvin's system, Calvin was, was and I'm, is like flawlessly logical. If you concede his premises, his presupposition, we all have presuppositions, the things we can't prove but that we presuppose. But sometimes we need to let the Bible be sure it's guiding those presuppositions. Mm-hmm. And Calvin misdefined sovereignty. He defined it as, term, as determinism. The Bible does not define God's sovereignty as determinism. In fact, it says because he's sovereign, he has determined that man will have free will. He works out all things in accordance with his will, but his will is is that man is going to be love capable and man is going to be responsible and man is going to give an account to him for the choices they make. That's If you take that away, you take the whole Bible away. Right. And Calvin's system took that away basically because what he said was, is no, God's sovereignty basically is that God controls everything. And what that did, if you can think of it, it kind of tilted the foundation maybe to the left or to the right, whatever you want to imagine. And if you build on a tilted foundation, what are you going to have? Well, at first, it's not too bad. You build one story, things are leaning off a little. You build two stories. You know, if you keep going, you can pretty soon get the Tower of Pisa. <laughs> it's it's leaning way out, and if you keep going, it'll fall. Uh, and and what basically Calvin did was realize he was creating the Tower of Pisa and quit because he realized if he kept going, it would fall and would become totally unbiblical. Beasy and the and those who followed him, the theologians who followed him, went ahead and put the other stories on, and basically uh, hyper Calvinism falls and becomes un, basically unbiblical theology in that it. It, uh, although some people are true Christians who believe that because they, their faith is in Christ, but it, it's an unbiblical theology. It creates a lot of problems simply because it uh, it basically starts out with this determinism and then it builds on it. So here's how Calvin built on that determinism, and so that's where your tulip theory comes in. First of all, he said, well, we start off, because he doesn't want man to have anything to do with salvation, we start off with total depravity. Now, total depravity is actually not taught in Scripture. What is taught in Scripture is what we call radical depravity. Now, you say, what's the difference? It sounds pretty similar to me. Uh, there is a difference. Radical depravity means that we are so depraved and we are so sinful, we couldn't possibly save ourselves. There's nothing we can do to save ourselves. But it does not mean that we are incapable of making good choices. Sinners can make good choices and they can sometimes do good things. The Bible makes that clear. But it's they cannot do so much good they save themselves or change their own nature. They just can't do that It's because they're radically depraved. And therefore, we all sin and we all fall short of the glory of God. Total depravity, on the other hand, goes further than that. It says that we are so far gone from righteousness that we're the same as a dead corpse. We can't do anything good, period. Uh, We can't make good choices because anything we do is just evil. Uh, we are dead to God. We are dead to him. Now, it is true that we are dead to God, but they misdefine what that means. Being dead to God means that we're severed from a relationship with him, but it doesn't mean that we cease to exist or we cease to have powers that were endemic and put in us by the creation. Uh, dead to God doesn't mean cease to exist. It means to be severed from the source of life. And man is severed from the source of life. So we are dead to God spiritually. And that does begin to lead to other forms of death. Our, our will begins to die because we lose the power, of course, to really have freedom of will. Our will gets in bondage. And, and we could go on through the third. I've actually outlined in my first doctoral program six forms of death that come out of the first death, because, you know, in death, in dying, you shall die, is mm-hmm. really what the Hebrew says. And uh, it's interesting that uh, total depravity was put there by John Calvin because he said, no, we're so dead, we're like a corpse. And so the way this person can do nothing, well, yeah, you, you pretty made it clear they can do nothing. A corpse can do nothing to, to do a living motion. So they can't move toward God. Uh uh, when you talk about radical depravity, you're saying that God can confront that person. They can make choices, but they can't make a choice that, by which they can save themselves. But they still have a will, and they still can make good choices, but ultimately God can enlighten that will, and God can enable that will 
And ultimately, that can lead to what there's a couple things. It's, it's called either prevenient grace. It's, I think it's, that was the term of the early church fathers, preventing grace. And Wesley liked that one. He turned it into preventing prevenient grace. It means grace that goes before your salvation, which enables you to respond to saving grace. Mm-hmm. And uh, he said uh, that everyone gets prevenient grace, so it's efficacious for the whole world. So everyone could be saved. It's just whether or not they're willing to be saved. So prevenient grace say, saves everybody at the point of being able to say yes to saving grace, but it doesn't force them to say yes to saving grace. Calvin, on the other hand, said, no, there's something called common grace, which is just kind of like a form of civil aid by God that keeps societies from falling into total hellishness altogether. Mm -hmm. Uh, But it's not efficacious for salvation at all. And the only people who get efficacious grace, grace that actually does something to you, are the elect. And so he decided that Jesus didn't, you know... Then and we'll get there in just a moment. But but Tulip starts out with total depravity. I think C.S. Lewis put it very well when he said, "If we were truly totally depraved, we would have no concept of good. Therefore, we could not be held accountable because we'd be incapable. We'd be like a corpse. You can't hold a corpse accountable for not doing something because it's incapable of doing something. You can't hold a corpse accountable for not knowing something because it can't possibly know anything." So if we were totally depraved, we wouldn't know we were depraved. We wouldn't know we were evil. But the Bible continually says we do know that we're evil and appeals to that. You know that you're sinners. You know you're violating God's law. And the only way we could do that is we had some remnant. And there is a light that lighteth every person that comes into the world. There's some remnant of conscience active. And there's some remnant of, of, of being able to respond to morality there. And so that's why... We don't accept total depravity, though we do endorse radical depravity. And that seems like a, you know, we're kind of splitting frog hairs here, but boy, does it lead in totally different directions. It's a why in the road, actually, J.D. Yeah, I can see that because total depravity would mean that non-believers could do nothing good. Right. And we all know that we've seen a lot of people that are non-believers that do wonderful things. Yes. Very compassionate. Very mm-hmm. great things. Yeah, but it, it won't be salvistic unless mm-hmm. they are willing to come because they can't have a, they can even have great faith, but that faith will not be in the right person and that faith will not be sufficient to bring them to salvation. Mm-hmm. Of course, the next thing in Tulip is the you, the unconditional election. Now, what this came to is that if indeed everybody is totally depraved, then the only thing that can happen for salvation is that. God has to then unconditionally elect who gets saved. And the reason the election is unconditional is because man can have nothing to do with it. Uh, man's will is not to be involved. He's, he's, in other words, we're, we're, we're creating a Pelagian-proof theology. So logically, we're, remember, this is a philosophical theology. We start off with a definition of sovereignty. That kind of tilts a little bit, you know, and it's deterministic. God is sovereign because he controls everything rather than a complex sovereignty that says he's able to, to be sovereign even in a world where he's given limited freedom and moral freedom to people. So we believe in complex sovereignty, and the early church believed in complex sovereignty. God is sovereign, but it's by, he's, he's a glorious God because he can, he can be sovereign over a world of free moral agents that have limited freedom but significant freedom. But he's not, it wouldn't be to his glory to just have simplistic sovereignty. In fact, they make a big deal about sovereignty in hyper-Calvinism, but the problem is, is that the sovereignty they attribute to God does not glorify him at all. They say it's all to God's glory because he's sovereign. Well, determinism would be very inglorious because that would say he's such a pathetic God, he can't really save anybody except by just determinism and controlling everything and coercing everything. He can't really win people over by love. And uh, so, but then the next step is this, therefore, it's unconditional uh, election. God mm-hmm. just dis- saves people by divine decree. He comes along and says, you're saved, you're not. I choose to save you. Now, this breaks down into several things, and we'll, we'll only touch on a couple of them. Uh, one of them is what we call, is what they call supralapsarianism. Now, I know it's a big word. But lapsarianism just simply refers to the fall, the lapse. Mm-hmm. If you can hear lapse in there, we, 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 the lapsarianism, supra-lapsarianism basically was a teaching in Calvinism that said 
God determined before the creation of the world, before the fall ever happened, who would be saved and who wouldn't. Therefore, the logical deduction is he actually created some people just to be damned. Therefore, the only reason they exist is so he can damn them and put them in hell and torment them forever. Uh, there's a problem with that because that, as John Wesley said, he said, that's a big slander to God because you're slandering the God of the Bible. That is not the God revealed in Christ on the cross at all. Right. Uh, so supralapsarianism says that God just decided ahead of time by divine decree who's going to be saved, and he created some people just to be damned. And and then Calvin's way it was that he needed a, some way to justify that. So he says, well, we don't really understand it, but it's to somehow to the glory of God. God must need this backdrop of all these evil people for his glory to shine more brightly. Well, God doesn't need anything. And so Calvin, unfortunately, is ascribing a need to God. That would really get you in trouble because now you have less than a perfect God whose glory, you know, needs to be, you know, somehow amplified by creating creatures against which his glory can become greater because they're doomed and so dark and hopeless. Uh, our God doesn't need that. His glory shines so bright, he doesn't need any necessary backdrops. Yeah, so, so in unconditional election, what, what takes place here is that it says that God determines. Now, you have superlapsarianism, and then you have infralapsarianism. And infralapsarianism just basically says, no, God didn't, didn't decree who was going to get saved before the fall or and who was going to be damned before the fall. He did it after the fall. It was his response to the fall. But he still decides who gets saved and who doesn't. And so they say this means that God's not really all that bad. He didn't just create people to be damned, but mankind pretty much damned themselves. And God comes along and says, you know, I'm going to have mercy on some. And so he has mercy on some, but he has no obligation to have mercy on anybody, obviously. So roll over the dice. So, so, so yeah. So he decides, according to his own divine decrees and wisdom, who's going to be saved. He pours efficacious grace on those people. He elects them to salvation. And because of that, they're born again without their will being involved. And then because they're born again, they, they have faith. They start believing which is kind of backwards to the Bible, can you know? But that's the way Calvin explains it, and and then of course God's supposed to be off the hook because these other people they're just getting what they deserve because it's a result of the fall. The problem is is that if you have the power to save all, but you choose arbitrarily that you're not going to save certain people, even though you have the power to save them then that makes you as guilty as if you purposely damned them. You know, for example, if I'm standing, uh, you know, uh, next to a swimming pool and someone's in the pool and suddenly they start drowning and I have the ability to jump into the pool and swim and pull them out because I'm a good swimmer. But I stand there and go, no, I don't want to get my shoes wet. I don't want to get my clothes wet. I'm sorry. I'm just not going to do it. I, I just elect not to do that. And, and there is, I doubt there's very few people who wouldn't say, you just let them die because you just didn't want to save them, you know, for arbitrary or, you know, and uh, that's just simply, you know, they would, they would blame you deeply for that. They would say mm -hmm. that's evil. That's evil. And so there's not a, really a lot of difference in outcome between supralapsarianism and infralapsarianism. Uh, both of them are based upon determinism. Yeah, I was just going to say that attitude sort of just cancels out the idea that God's first nature is love. Well, it completely cancels it out. Because if you truly are a God of love, you wouldn't just look at somebody and say, arbitrarily, you're going to go to hell. Yeah, and you wouldn't create people just so you could torment them forever and ever and ever. Right. Uh, and and that's the whole point we're, we were making in that first broadcast is that God made us love capable he is love, and therefore love is his controlling attribute. And this is, again, where you can see that something got upside down in Calvinism because God's love controls his sovereignty because he is love. He, sovereignty is merely an attribution of God, 
And he is sovereign. There's no doubt about that. But he's sovereign according to his nature, and his nature is love, not sovereignty. Calvin turned it around and said he will love and choose who to love based on his sovereignty. So sovereignty controls love. And that's just simply backwards to the very nature of God. God's first nature is love, and therefore he is sovereign according to that love, and that's why he sovereignly has chosen to give us free moral agency and responsibility, and therefore he provides us salvation. Uh, He just doesn't obtain it for a certain group of people. Calvin would never use the word he provided salvation, even though the Bible does. He would only say it was attained, and he meant it was attained for a certain group. Uh, But Jesus didn't provide it for everybody, but he did according to the Scripture. There's very vivid pictures all throughout the Bible of God's love controlling or driving his sovereignty. I think that the flood is a good example. He could have wiped out all of humanity and started over. Mm -hmm. But instead, he saved some, the righteous. Mm -hmm. I think Christ on the cross is the absolute example of his love over his sovereignty. Yes. Again, he could have just crushed all those that needed crushed, and instead he provided a way for all future generations. Yeah. And in another way to say that, although there's nothing wrong with how you said it, another way to say that is that it was his sovereign choice to remain a God of love. Mm-hmm. So he sovereignly chose to love first, but his sovereignty was controlled by that nature because that is who he is. He, right. God, uh, you know, theos agape estin, you know. God love is emphatically. Mm-hmm. Eston is emphatic. So uh, if we lose that now, and we don't want to get into, you know, wishy-washy milk toast love because no, no. The, the love of the Bible is very, very exacting and fierce. And it calls us to holiness and it refuses to lower the standard. It loves us so much. It calls us and provides the grace for us to reach the standard so we can become everything God wants us to be. So it's not some kind of milk toast love that you hear so much about. And that's what Calvinists will often try to do. Oh, you think God's, uh, you know, the nature of God is love. Oh, you just want to make everything hunky-dory and, you know, you don't want to preach about sin. And but No, 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 no. That's creating a paper tiger to defeat. That's not what the Bible says. Right. But the Bible makes it clear that God's primary nature is love. So you end up with limited atonement as being the next logical step. Christ didn't die for everybody, according to Calvin, because that's a logical step. He just died for those that he determined unconditionally to save. You'd have to remove some scripture for that to be true. Yeah, major portions of scripture. (laughs) Okay. You know, God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself, not counting mankind's sins against them. Second Corinthians 5, 19. Mm -hmm. I mean, you know, uh, Paul, I mean, John talks about that Jesus in uh, 1 John 2, 2, that Jesus is the atoning sacrifice for the sins of the whole world. Well, I mean, what are you going to do with passages like that? Uh, you know, because he, I mean, the Bible is just, I mean, you can't, there's just so much sleight of hand you can do to try to make that mean something else. Mm -hmm. And you really can and not be honest. Jesus died for the whole world. And that's an important truth. But Calvin was forced to that because if God decrees only certain people to be saved, then the question was, well, did he die for all the others that he decreed to be damned? Well, no, he must not have. He must, he probably only he he obtained salvation only for the elect. Therefore, they have it, but he didn't die for the others. So that's where you get limited atonement. Mm-hmm. It's a the, it's a philosophical theology deduction. It's not a biblical one, and it goes contrary to you know God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son. I mean, we could just keep quoting scripture all day right. on this one. You know, <laughs> it, it's just over and over. The next step, of course, that's going to come out of that uh, is that uh, you're going to get irresistible grace. Now, what this means is, is that there's a limit, you know, God chooses who's going to be saved. He predetermines it, and he only dies for those who are going to be saved. Then somebody asks the question, because you got a logical step, uh, but what if they don't want to be saved? Do they have any choice in the matter? And Calvin's answer is no, because we don't allow humans to have anything to do with this. So we have to come up with something called irresistible grace. And irresistible grace 
basically is that God coerces the will of those he has chosen to save. He determines they're going to be saved. He eradicates, so to speak, their fallen will and puts in a new will, and therefore they are saved, and therefore they are born again, and then they will start believing, and as a result of that, they move into sanctification and start becoming like Christ. Uh the problem is that's not the order, the order of salvation. That's not the uh, salutis order in at all. In the Bible, it is you believe and, you know, we are saved by faith in Jesus Christ. And the sinner is called to believe, to have faith. They are not called. In fact, there would be no call if you were just going to be saved by divine decree because God's already decided that and he didn't need to call call you in a sense. And, of course, Calvin's make a lot of nuances about, well, God uses the preaching of the gospel, and that awakens the elect to the fact they're elect. And, you know, God uses all those means because he ordered them uh, to be used. But it, truthfully, within the system itself, it, they're unnecessary mm. because if God's determined you're going to be saved, you're going to be saved. You don't have any choice in the matter. So you have this irresistible grace. Now, the problem with irresistible grace is that it's a contradiction in concept. Grace is a free gift. Grace is unmerited favor that is given to you even though you don't deserve it. But for it to be irresistible, it cannot be a gift. It is something that is forced on you. And what is forced on you is not a gift. Mm -hmm. <laughs> you may be being given something you don't deserve, but if you don't want it and you, but it's forced on you, that's coercion and there's a difference between right. Uh, that. So irresistible grace is a contradiction in concept. It just it makes no sense. Uh, the Bible knows nothing about irresistible grace. And and so and then, of course, the final part of your tulip is the P. Excuse me. It's the P. And that is the preservation of the saints. And you can see where this came from logically. Well, if, you know, you have total depravity and the only way you can be saved is by unconditional election and Jesus only died for the elect, and then, of course, you have this irresistible grace to make sure that they get saved, so you don't have to worry about the elect getting saved. They're going to get saved because the grace is irresistible to them. Well, then what if a person who is elect and, and has been saved by this irresistible grace doesn't seem to be persevering? They don't seem that they're going to endure to the end and be saved. Uh, well, now we got to have a solution for that, so... Calvin basically came up with the preservation of the saints. And the preservation of the saints is basically that it's impossible for the elect to fall from grace because God has predetermined them to salvation. They don't have a choice. The elect will persevere, period. Well, what if they're not living a life that looks like it's been transformed? Well, John Calvin, to his credit, would say, well, then they're not part of the elect. Uh, and there's many Calvinists who would say that today. I, you know, Dr. John MacArthur, for example, would say, if you are truly a believer, you will live a holy life. And he wrote two good books on that, you know, talking about the gospel of Jesus and faith works and so on. And very good books talking about that, you know, if you are really a believer and you really have saving faith, it will show because you will produce good works and you will live, pursue holiness and Christ likeness. And if you're not doing that, then, of course, John would say you're not among the elect. Uh, you're, you're not truly a believer. So uh, and uh, so anyway, that's uh, that's really your kind of your tulip theory. And, of course, the central hallmark of Calvinism, that divine decree thing that God's determining everything. Now, we've discussed a deterministic view mm -hmm. of salvation, and I know that we and I share a different view on salvation. Mm -hmm. So the view of salvation that we are proponents of looks much different than this. Yes. And so can you walk us through where we're at on that? Well, let me say that all, as there is Calvinists who are what we, I call moderate Calvinists like Norman Geisler, uh, as I would say, uh, Norman uh, Geisler uh, really ends up in what I would call a kind of a classical apostolic orthodoxy and, uh, and, would, and understands human freedom and uh, understands God's predestination as not being determinative. Uh, he doesn't confuse foreknowledge and predestination as some people do and so on. But at the same time, 
And, and yet there are those in Calvinism who, who are, I really believe are quite unscriptural in the way they approach it. However, when you, when you go to the other side, there's all kinds of unorthodox and heretical views as well uh, among Arminians and among certain Wesleyans. And the tendency there is to go into the ditch of legalism. So now you get a lot of works involved and people become legalists. They have to produce, you know, a certain amount of holiness that has to be, you know, visible. And they and everything becomes a works oriented thing, even though they'll claim they're operating by grace. It's really works that they're all wrapped up with. So we have to be careful there. But there are those in Wesleyanism and in various forms of Arminianism that move toward the center of the road by conforming to Scripture, and they are what we would call a classical apostolic orthodoxy that is that, and that salvation is what you're asking us to mm-hmm. define. Absolutely. And that starts off by this. The Bible basically says that God empowers man's radically fallen will so that we can respond to his salvation. He illuminates us with his truth, uh, and then he and he preserves us with the ability to respond to him. Uh, we are not coerced to respond to him, but we are given the ability to respond to him. We are illuminated and we are enabled. And that's what, of course, what Wesley called prevenient grace. Originally, the word was prevenient grace, but prevenient grace. And it's what you would call Calvin's a kind of a combination of Calvin's common and efficacious grace. Of course, Calvin said the common grace only goes to everybody, but efficacious grace only goes to the elect. But Wesley said, no, uh, prevenient grace is efficacious to the point that it it enables people to be saved. It, it puts them at a level where they can respond to the gospel. But when the gospel comes and says, will you? Uh, believe, will you surrender your life? Will you trust Jesus for your salvation? They It enables them to make a choice. It empowers them to say yes or no. Um, and now, they can say no just basically based on their own fallenness, but the only way they can really say yes and believe adequately unto salvation is because they are enabled to believe. This, of course, keeps it from any human merit being involved because the choice we make that saves us is not, is again, it's Paul, work out your salvation, set your will in the right direction, but it is, remember, it's God who works in you, and he's enabling you to will and to act according to his good purpose. And God's mm-hmm. good purpose is that none should perish, but that all should come to repentance. That kind of does away with limited atonement. Uh, he wants everyone to repent and come to eternal life, but it's obvious not everyone will. And it makes it clear that those who will not, will not be saved. But that will be because, not because God didn't offer it to them or provide it for them. It's because they rejected it. Right. Absolutely. Well, I'll tell you what, this has been a great lesson for us today because, and I think it was important, because I think that we have to go back and understand where core beliefs come from and where our doctrine comes from before we can start answering some of the harder questions on people's minds about salvation and how it works. And, you know, you answered a lot of the questions today when it comes to, is it forced upon us? Do we get to have any say in it? There's been a lot of questions in that arena and, you know, whether or not our free will becomes coerced at some point. Right. And I think we've talked about all those ideas and maybe where the root of those questions come from and through some teaching or historical knowledge. Well, I know you wanted to get to, and we probably won't today. I don't. Our, I think our, we're going to have to go again. Yeah, really? Yeah. We wanted to <laughs> talk about, you know, infants and how they're saved. Yeah, uh, and I, uh, we, I don't think we're going to get there today. No, we're not. <laughs> um, so I tell you, what, I, I do think that this was an extremely important lesson. And I thank you for coming and sharing it with us because not a lot of people get this depth of understanding of where doctrine comes from, where these beliefs, mm-hmm. these core beliefs come from. Well, I hope it's helpful, J.D., and at the same time, I want people to understand, you know, those of you that are more stewed out there and, and think about these things, understand we're just doing a, a real edited, you know, flyover here. I mean, we're, we're at 30,000 feet. We're not down examining each detail. Mm-hmm. And, and if we did that, of course, this uh, podcast would go on 
forever and ever, almost eternally, because there's just so much to unpack. But what we're trying to do is kind of do a flyover and hit the important things and tie them together and give some historical understanding. Because if you don't have that, you really don't know where things came from. You know, people just assume that it's always been this way. Well, maybe it wasn't, you know. and. Right. Uh, and so when we go back and study the early church fathers, in fact, that's what really profoundly affected Wesley. He went back and started reading in the original languages, the writings of the fathers of the first four centuries, and it just blew him away. And he was going, oh, wow, we've strayed so far from what they said the apostles meant by what they wrote in the scriptures. Mm-hmm. And uh, so that greatly uh, changed his whole approach and especially his practical approach to how he led people to Christ and taught them to practice their faith. And again, I think that for people living some 2,000 years after Christ died on the cross, the questions they have about their salvation, I think it's important for people to examine where the root of that question come from. Mm-hmm. How did they formulate the question? What caused the doubt in their mind? Good. And I yeah. think that what we've talked about today can help in those areas. Yeah, because what we want to do is solve two problems. And, and you know, there's always the two, you know, the two ditches. Mm-hmm. We want to make sure that no one has false security because we're going, we haven't talked about can people lose their salvation yet uh, and uh, – and all of that. And on the other hand, we don't want to create insecurity. Uh, you know, we talk, we often talk about eternal security, mm-hmm. we, but there's also a, a form of eternal insecurity in some forms of, of uh, doctrine. Right. And we don't want that either because that's not biblical. Right. Uh, there is a security of the believer. The believer has security in Christ. And, but we need to understand how the Bible defines that security. Mm-hmm. And uh, so... Anyway, maybe we can touch on that next time, and that would Absolutely. lead us. That would lead us into how infants can be saved by the atonement, and uh, and why it fits in the atonement. We don't have to make some kind of exception that doesn't fit. Yeah, that sounds great. Well, this has been a Veritas Resurgence broadcast, and today on a voice calling in the wilderness, we've been talking about the very important topic of our salvation. So we thank you, Gary, for coming and speaking with us today. Uh, My privilege. And for you guys out there listening, we'd love it for you to take a moment and subscribe to our podcast. Don't forget to visit our website at vrbroadcast.org, where you can find more teaching and ask questions of the show and our guests. Also find us on Facebook at A Voice Calling in the Wilderness. If you want to hear more messages from Pastor Drum, you can find him at pcnh.church. And do us a favor, recommend the podcast to your friends and family. Again, thank you for listening and have a blessed day. Thank you.